in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's, Matthew's genealogy, as I, as I said, it gives us some, some crazy stories, some crazy stories about how the genealogy continued on, how the generations continued on, how the line kept going. It gives us a story of a, of a daughter-in-law, as I shared last, year, last week, Tamar, who seduces her father-in-law and, and gets pregnant through that seduction as she poses as a prostitute. It tells another story about, a, as I just mentioned, a king who seduces his neighbor's wife and gets her pregnant and has his neighbor murdered. It has a, another story of a, of a Moabite woman who, who woos her kinsman redeemer in the story of, of Ruth and Boaz. All of those are represented. We shared some of them last week. All of those are represented in that genealogy. There's all kinds of different stories about how these generations came to be, but none of those stories, whether it's a daughter-in-law posing as a prostitute or a king looking over the top of his palace into the neighbor's yard, none of those stories compare with this next genealogical conception story that happens in Matthew chapter one. None of them compare to this one that we're about to read. There's no other birth story like it in human history. This story that we're about to read in Matthew chapter one involves three different parents. It involves no, zero, intimate and sexual relations. This story involves a scandal it involves an angelic dream. It involves intentional name calling. It involves an Old Testament confirmation. This story involves a humble change of heart, and it involves a promise and a picture of the gospel at work. And it involves the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's read it together in Matthew Chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I hope to walk through this story, this passage a little bit, by helping us to see, as I mentioned, there's three parents, really, involved in this story. And I hope to help us to see a little bit from their, each of their perspectives. The first parent that we find in, in verse 18 of this story 
The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way with his mother, Mary. His mother, Mary. We don't really know a lot about Mary. Mary is mentioned a few times in Scripture, in the Gospels, and, and, and again in the first part of Acts. Mary is mentioned a few times. She shows up in a couple of different stories. She's here in these early stories, in this, in this birth story, and, and, and especially in Luke. We tend to see her more portrayed in the book of Luke. But she's, she shows up here. She's in this birth story. She's in the story as, as, they, as the parents head to the temple uh, to, have, to have Jesus uh, circumcised and, and blessed in the temple. They, she shows up again a little later when, when Joseph and Mary take their family to Jerusalem for the Passover and, and Jesus does not make the trip home. They have to turn around and they find him in the temple uh, there teaching and learning uh, with the other leaders of the temple. Uh, she shows up again at a wedding when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the wedding in Cana. Uh, she shows up again at the, at the end in the crucifixion story. She shows up. She's seen uh, several times in, in the Gospels. Again, Luke seems to, seems to have had some kind of, of interview process with Mary or, or had some time with her and, and probably even had some kind of written uh, journal that she maybe had or that she had written down for him. So Luke is really the place to go to find some of these things about Mary because he had certainly had some, some more direct connection with her as he tried to write his book. But we find her in several places throughout the stories of the Gospels, but we don't really know very much about Mary. Tradition and history gives us a little bit more perspective. And so as you read through some commentaries and as you begin to see what life would have been like in this New Testament time when Jesus was born, you begin to have a little bit better picture. And, and it doesn't necessarily look like the nativity that you have in your mind that you maybe have seen throughout your life. In fact, in fact commentators tell me that Mary, there, there probably was very little to zero chance that Mary had a white gown and a blue silk headdress. And yet that's the picture that we have. That, as you think of Mary, that's, that's the picture. But she probably didn't have white on. She would have, have been a much lower class of citizen. She would have worn dark colors that, doesn't, that, that were likely to get dirty and not often to get cleaned. She probably had brown and dark clothes on. She would not have had probably access to any kind of silk that she would have worn. History tells us also that Mary probably was a teenager, maybe even an early teenager. That's, those are the girls who would have been betrothed to a man in this scenario during this time in history. There was three parts to getting married when, when you were at this, time, at this point in history. Uh, the first, the engagement, would have happened when two families came together, typically often the parents, two parents came together and made a contractual deal together to have their children married. That's probably what happened here. The families got together. Mary didn't really have any part of it whatsoever. Her parents 
made some kind of contractual deal for her to become engaged to Joseph. And maybe, possibly, Joseph's parents made that deal with her parents. Maybe Joseph made it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Joseph may have been old enough to make that contractual deal on his own. But whatever the case, it was not a love story like the Hallmark movies that you've been watching for these last several weeks. Mary and Joseph didn't meet, their eyes didn't catch across the room, and the story did not revolve around them coming together finally through conflict. Mary was probably contractually engaged to Joseph, maybe without even knowing him. They both came from the small town of Nazareth, so they possibly at least knew who the other was, but there's a chance that they never knew who the other was, never had laid eyes on the other person. A contract had been made, and oftentimes, oftentimes commentators tell me that, that this contract, this engagement contract, would be made as soon as a girl reached puberty, as soon as she was going to be able to bear children. And so sometimes it would be made very, very early. These girls might be very, very young when they're first contractually engaged to another man. They're not, they're not sent to that man's home. They're not, they're not with that man. They're not in his household, but they are contractually obligated to that man. That's what the engagement is. But after the engagement, after that contract is made, while the girl still lives in the home of her parents, there's a betrothal period, usually about a year, maybe even longer than a year, where the girl has been contractually engaged to a man but lives at home with her parents. And then after a year, after that betrothal period ends, then there is a, a wedding parade where the, the groom goes to the, the home of the girl, the, the family home of the girl. He, he's ready for her and she is ready for him. And there's this parade of him going and bringing her then to his house. There's a gigantic celebration and a party. And it's then that the marriage is finally officially Complete. They're officially married and it's consummated in that moment. It's a long process and it's a, and it's a deep and detailed process. This would have been true mostly just for Jews. This wouldn't have been true in all of the other cultures of that time, but specifically in the Jewish culture, this would have taken place at that time. And so we enter into this story with Mary and Joseph and Mary has been contractually engaged to Joseph, but she's in the betrothal period, this period where, again, they probably aren't spending time together. This is not a courtship between Joseph and Mary. The, the deal has already been made. Joseph knows that Mary is going to be his wife, but he, that doesn't mean that they're spending time getting to know each other. They still possibly do not even see each other during that betrothal time. There's a waiting period and a prep period that Mary is enduring at this point. There is, it doesn't seem, at least from what we read here in Matthew, even what we read in, in Luke, uh, there doesn't seem to be really anything noteworthy or unique about Mary. She's really no different than any other young female person who was contractually engaged to another man in this time, except, 
that we read in Luke that she was favored by God and she was a willing servant, willing to do whatever God had called her to do, willing to to be whoever God had called her to be. We don't see much of Mary's story here in Matthew chapter one. You do have to go to Luke chapter one to see some of those things and to see her response as the angel proclaims to her and shares with her that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. We don't know much about Mary except what tradition tells us, but we know this. Mary was a virgin. And there was absolutely, positively, no way that Mary was going to be pregnant. But what Matthew tells us is when Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. This is parent number two that I think we want to look at today. Parent number one, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father is parent number two in this story. God the Father impregnates Mary through a work of the Holy Spirit. There's really not much to talk about with, with this. None of us in here have any experience with this kind of situation. We can't talk about it. We don't understand it. It's in, it's in fact difficult sometimes very difficult for us to believe. We have a hard time understanding what does this mean? Why? Why a virgin birth? How a virgin birth? What even is a virgin birth? And why would God, why would God choose for a virgin birth to be the way that his son enters into the world? I went to Wayne Grudem this week, his systematic theology book, just to try to get a picture of what what does the virgin birth really mean for us. And he shares three things that I just want to share with you quickly. Three reasons why the virgin birth is so important, why God chose to do this through a virgin birth. The first, Wayne Grudem says this. It says the virgin birth shows that salvation comes from God and only from God. Salvation does not come through any human effort. There's no way that humans could put this plan together because it's impossible for humans to put this plan together. The virgin birth shows that salvation has to come through a supernatural work of God. We're wired to depend upon our own abilities and our own uh, advances that we can come up with on our own. We like to do things in our own strength. And Grudem says that the virgin birth gives us evidence that salvation does not come through any device or ability that we have on our own, but only through the supernatural work of God. The second reason why God would choose to, to bring his son into the world through a virgin birth is because this virgin birth unites full deity and full humanity, fully God, fully man, together into one person. And what Grudem says is that that there might be other ways 
that, that God could have done this. There, it, it's possible that God could have, alone in heaven, in his laboratory of heaven, he could have created, just like he created Adam and Eve and, and spoke the world into existence, God could have created his son to be in human form, put him all together in the laboratory of heaven, and sent him down to heaven so he would show up as a full-grown man, human there, uh, untouched, untouched by sin, exactly fully man, fully God. And yet, and yet, there would be problems if God had done it that way. That, that, laboratory creation Jesus that gets sent down from heaven and appears on earth. He's, he's created outside of humanity, outside of the lineage that we spent last week looking at. He's, he's not really human, even, even though God could, could do whatever he wants. God could create him exactly like man. He would have, he would have been untouched by saying he would not have been a descendant of Adam and we would have looked at him and known that he was not like us. So the third option then would have been, or the, the, the next option would have been that, that he could have, he could have selected a human father and a human mother and had them conceive a baby in the natural way and then right maybe at the moment of conception or maybe at the moment of birth when that first breath happens somewhere in the midst of that God could have swooped in and changed that human baby into being fully God and fully man it was it was all human created all the way up until the moment that its first breath came and God swooped in in that moment plucked him out made him to be totally, fully God as well. And yet, as we would look at that, as we would see that, we would see, we would understand that he was just exactly like us. There was no difference in him than us. And so even that, we would not see or understand the full godness of how that could be. So instead, God does something that has never been done and seems impossible to us. God perfectly, perfectly joins his deity with our humanity and blends them together in perfection. So Jesus comes from Adam in the same line that you and I come from. And yet that line is not exactly like yours and mine. That line has been interrupted that line, the chain for Jesus, is just a little off from yours and mine. You and I have a human father and a human mother, both who trace their lines back to Adam. Sin that reigns supreme in each family tree all the way back to Genesis chapter three. But Jesus, one of his lines, traces back to Genesis chapter three. That's what Luke shows us. But one of those lines comes before the dawn of creation. One of those lines, one of those lines comes from the perfect, eternal, holy God. His line is different than our line. Virgin birth, virgin birth is so important. God the Father is so important. One of the questions that we have, because we have a hard time believing in the virgin birth. It doesn't make sense to us. 
And one of the questions that often gets asked in this time is even, even that, did anybody believe it? Would anybody believe a virgin birth even in that time when Mary and Joseph come, would they, would, would they, wouldn't it be too far-fetched to be believable? Isn't it too far-fetched for us to believe it? And, and the answer in that time would have been no. It wouldn't have been completely far-fetched for these, for these people during this time to understand it. Jews already Jews already knew that God opened and closed wombs. He did miracles in the wombs of women. The womb of a virgin being opened up and impregnated is no different, probably, I'm told at least, is no different to Jewish people than the womb of Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, being opened up so that she might have a baby. All through Scripture, there are places and pictures where God God controls and opens and closes wombs. And it would not have been all that far-fetched for a Jewish person at this time to hear and to understand and, and to possibly believe it. And Romans and Greeks, the ones that surrounded, that, that were a part of this story as well, they also had lots of stories, lots of mythology stories where their gods would have had intimate relations with with humans, which created other man-god kinds of creatures. And so they too already were predisposed to begin to understand this idea, even in that twisted way. The virgin birth, the virgin birth makes everything else possible. Finally, because Mary, this willing and favored, this willing servant favored by God, this young girl betrothed to Joseph and God the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit create this perfect, fully man and yet fully God and the incarnation happens. And the word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. God comes to earth to be with us. And so we have a Savior who's like us in every way. We have a Savior who was born as a baby, who grew through childhood, grew to adulthood. He, he understands what it means to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it feels like to get tired and to grow weary. He was subject to weakness. He knew disease. He even finds and knows death for a moment. Jesus had a soul that felt the same emotions, many of the emotions that we feel. There are times, Scripture tells us, that Jesus was troubled. There are times that he is sorrowful. There are times when Jesus is angry. There are times when Jesus marvels and is surprised. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us, but was without sin. Jesus is fully man. We have a Savior who feels what we feel and understands our struggles and knows our hardships and relates to our circumstances. We have a Savior who is like us, but... but he's not like us. His mother is like our mother. His father is not like our father. Why do these first two parents that we look at here matter? Because 
Jesus came to save his people from their sins, Matthew tells us. And our hope comes through that. The third parent that we find here, though, after Mary and after God is Joseph. As I said, Luke is the story that, Luke is the book that tells us mostly about Mary. Matthew tries to help us to have a little picture of Joseph. And if you've been following along in your devotional with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, he spends lots of time talking about Joseph and what we, what the little that we do know and understand about Joseph. Joseph uh, was, was a carpenter. We, we see he was a carpenter in Nazareth. So he had, he, 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 he wasn't at the bottom of the social ladder. He's probably had a, a fairly steady, a fairly full-time job. He probably, he probably, I think this is, is in the devotional, but he probably was older. Maybe even, maybe even a widow or maybe even had been married before and, and had children with another woman before he was betrothed to Mary. It's also possible that he was a fellow teenager, just like Mary. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that he probably, we, we think he might have been older because he probably passes away before Mary does. There, we, don't, we don't hear any more about him. Joseph is there at the, at the birth. He's there at the, at the circumcision, at the temple. He's there again as they go uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover and, and Jesus doesn't go home with them and they have to go back and find him in the temple. Joseph is a part of those stories. But Joseph never shows up again in, in the rest of the Gospels. So somewhere after that story of Jesus as a child, Joseph, we assume, passes away. So he probably was a little bit older than Mary. We don't know. We don't know much about Joseph, but we see a few things about him in this passage in Matthew chapter 1. We know he's not the biological father of Jesus. We just talked about that. He is not the one who impregnates Mary but he is a just man, Matthew tells us. That he is an upright man. He's, he's not okay with this development. As Mary comes to him, as he, as he begins to, to understand, maybe he's receiving word from her, maybe he, he sees, maybe he, no, we don't know how Joseph got the word that Mary was pregnant. But Joseph hears it, sees it, knows it, understands it. He, he knows right away what this means. He knows what he has not done and he assumes what she has done. And he's not okay with it. He's an upright man. He's a righteous man. He, he, he just can't live with this. And so he goes, he decides that he's going to break this contract that has been made with Mary's family. And he's going to put her aside Quietly. We see that Joseph is a compassionate man. He's an upright man, but he's also compassionate. He doesn't, he doesn't want Mary to go through any more shame than she probably already is and already will go through in the future. He wants to put her aside quietly so that he can spare her some of that guilt, some of that shame, some of those that will look at her. He's intentional about what he wants to do. He's, he's slow to decide. It tells us, Matthew tells us that he's, he's considering as he goes to sleep that night, as, he's, as he has this dream, as this angel comes to him, he's, he's processing, he's thinking about, he's ruminating on what he should do. He's considering what he should do. He's, he's not rash, but he's slow to make decisions so that he might make the right ones. 
We also see, as Joseph hears this dream, sees this dream, hears this proclamation from the angel that he is obedient. He's obedient. He does exactly what the angel commands him to do. He does exactly what God has called him to do. When Joseph wakes from sleep, he does just as the angel commanded him. He takes his wife. He knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, just as he had been instructed to do. We don't know much about Joseph. We don't even know exactly how he plays all this part into the, to the wedding story. God is the one through the Holy Spirit that, that impregnates Mary with Jesus Mary is the one who who has him conceived in her, who walks through the pregnancy and comes to the end and gives birth to the Son of God. Joseph is the one who obeys the commands that are given to him. But in that obeying, Joseph gives us, I believe, one of the first real gospel pictures in this New Testament period. Because Joseph... Joseph adopts Jesus into his family as his own son. Joseph Joseph could have turned his back. He could. He had had every right. In the midst of this contractual obligation that he had with Mary's family, he had every right to turn his back on Mary. He had every right to say, I can't do it. What you've done is horrible. This this sin that you have, 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 have brought on yourself, I don't want any part of it. He could have turned his back. He could have run away. He could have said, we'll, we'll, we'll make this work, but I'm going I'm to keep my distance from you. I'm not going to divorce you. You're still going to be a part of my family, but, but we're not going to be together. You, people aren't going to see us together. We're going to make some adjustments to this contract that we have. We're gonna, I'm going to keep my distance from you. But there's no picture of that in scripture what it appears from what we can see is that Joseph jumps wholeheartedly in to loving Mary and to leading Joseph as his child he brings Joseph into the family he he makes him a part of the family business he gives him his name. In fact, later, uh, the, there's people in the city say, who, who is this? Isn't, this? isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? They say about Jesus. He's in Joseph's family. Joseph, Joseph has brought him in, and Joseph paints a picture for us of God's redeeming work. Joseph brings Jesus into his family just as Jesus brings us into God's. Paul tells it to us this way in Galatians chapter 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Joseph paints that picture for us with Jesus, and Jesus makes it possible for us to be brought in as well. Joseph gives us a gospel story in the way that he brings Jesus in. May we find hope in that today. That God, from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1, God is orchestrating all of these things together, this whole genealogy together, so that 
Jesus might be born so that he, so that he might make a way for us, so that he might save his people from their sins. Worship team is going to come and lead us this morning and remind us of this mystery. And that's really what all of this is, the incarnation of Jesus. How does God become man? How do virgins become pregnant? We don't know. And I can't give you all of the answers for that, but we know this, God has made a way for us to have our sins forgiven and he's done it through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we hope in that today. Please stand with me as we worship together. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, condescended, took on flesh to ransom us.
from Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning.